0: Please take your Bible and turn to the Old Testament book of Zephaniah. If you have trouble locating Zephaniah, then you may just want to go to the book of Matthew and go back four books instead of trying to go to the book of Genesis and go forward to the 36th book. Today we continue our 12-part sermon series entitled Major League, a study of the minor prophets. Today we find ourselves in Zephaniah chapter 3. I want to read verses 8 and 9 in your hearing. Once you find your place in sacred scripture, please stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Zephaniah chapter 3, I'll read verses 8 and 9. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I have decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms, to pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then will I purify the lips of the peoples, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, the preaching, the understanding, the obedience of his perfect word. You may be seated. The prophet named Zephaniah was one of those good old southern boys. Like Habakkuk, he lived during the days of the southern kingdom of Judah. Zephaniah was one who proclaimed the word of the Lord to the people of God. He declared in the very opening line of Zephaniah chapter 1 that the Lord will sweep away everything from the face of the earth. He will sweep away men and animals, birds of the air and fish of the sea. You ask yourself, why would the Lord give such a dire declaration that he is going to sweep away everything? The simple answer is it's because of sin. But the more elaborate answer is that the people of God had failed to live for the God of the people. The children of Israel, they had failed to remember that covenant privileges carry covenant responsibilities. They simply live like the rest of the world. Have you ever heard the phrase that Israel is God's chosen people? You ever heard that? What does that mean? What does it mean for Israel to be God's chosen people? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Israel is indestructible. It doesn't mean that Israel is infallible. It doesn't mean that somehow Israel is superior. And it doesn't mean that somehow Israel has a second path of salvation unto God. Well, if it doesn't mean those things, then what does it mean? To say that Israel is the chosen people of God simply means that God in his sovereignty and in his grace could have chosen any nation to communicate his law, his word, his promises, his prophets, ultimately his Messiah. And as God looked at all the nations as if they were tools on his tool bench, he picked up One of the most insignificant nations, one of the smallest tools in his shed, he picked up the nation of Israel. Seemingly insignificant. In fact, the people of Israel live on a little slice of land no bigger than the state of New Jersey. And through them, God communicated to the world his law, his promises, his prophets, ultimately his Messiah. The reason God sovereignly selected and chose Israel was that he chose them to set them apart to be different than every other nation so they could testify to a watching world of who God is and what he expects from his people. Now, God chose them so that they would be different. He chose them for his purposes. The problem is that too many times in Israel's history, She wanted to look like every other nation. She wanted to have the same thoughts and the same values and the same lifestyles and uh, the same words and the same walk of life. Israel wanted to look like every other nation that surrounded her. And that was a problem. Israel had been chosen to be set apart to testify to God's goodness, his identity, his activity, and what he expects from His people and all people. Uh, But instead, they threw that aside and they lived like the world. You see evidence of this in Zephaniah chapter 1, verses 8, 9, and even in verse 12. In verse 8, the prophet says that the royalty of Judah, they were clad with foreign clothes. Now you think to yourself, what's the big deal? It's not a bad idea for them to have a bougie fashion, is it? That's not, that's not harmful. That's not bad for them to want to wear uh, the clothing and the attire of surrounding nations. The problem is that not only did they want to look like the surrounding nations, they wanted to live like the surrounding nations. The attire on the outside reflected their paganism on the inside. So they were dressed just like everybody else. They did not look different in any way. In verse 9, the prophet says that their lives were described in words of violence and deceit. In other words, they lived just like the world. They lived just like every other nation. In verse 12, Zephaniah simply says of God's people, they become complacent. Now you and I know what the word complacent means, but I love the phrase that, that describes the word complacent in verse 12. He says that that they they were like wine still left on its dregs. Now I'm a Baptist preacher. I don't know much about wine. So I had to call my deacons and their wives. (laughs) Not from this church, from other churches, from previous churches. And I had to ask them about this whole concept of wine still left on its dregs. And this is what I discovered. That wine left on its dregs, the dreg is the useless, sedimentary scum that develops when wine is not stirred. It's It's the wasteful part. It's the sedimentary, nasty part that settles into the bottom of the barrel. Now, don't miss the analogy when God says, my people have become complacent. They're no longer stirred. They're, they're, they're stale wine. They are so settled. They're so uh, just complacent in their view of God that it's like they're the scum at the bottom of the barrel. They're the dregs of society. God was telling his people through the prophet Zephaniah, you've become neutral towards God. It's not that God's people didn't love God or didn't like God. They weren't anti-God. They just weren't really for God. In fact, it says that they were complacent. They're like wine left on its dregs. And they come to the conclusion in their thoughts that God won't do anything to them, either good or bad. They become extremely complacent so that they acted and looked and dressed and spoke just like everybody else in their culture. So, in the days of Zephaniah, you could not tell the difference between the people who claim to be the people of God versus people who claim not to be the people of God. They look just the same as their lost neighbors. They they looked and acted. They lived their life just as if they did not know God. I hope that at this moment, you are connecting the dots of application. Because if you are saved, if you are in Christ, you've been set apart to be different than the watching world. You've been set apart to give testimony to who God is and what he expects from his people. Yet the reality is, is that far too many times the culture has impacted the church to a greater degree than the church has impacted the culture. So that we live our lives and our lives strongly resemble the life of a lost person. Somebody who just doesn't even have much regard for God. They too might be neutral towards the Lord. Not really against him, but not really for him either. Christian, let me ask you this question. When you evaluate the hours of your week, is the only difference in how you spend your hours versus how a lost family member or coworker or classmate or teammate spends their hour or their hours is that on Sunday you come to church. But outside of this hour, maybe 2 or 3 hours, but outside of this time that you give to church, Really, your life looks just like their life, and their life looks just like your life. Is is this the only thing that distinguishes you from the lost people that are around you? The fact that you come to church every Sunday. Now, wait a minute, let's be real. You come to church twice a month. Is that the only difference between your life and their life? How you spend your hours and how they spend their hours? I mean, other than the fact that you come to church... Are you just as greedy, just as self-absorbed, and just as immoral as they are? Do you drink as much as they do, cuss as much as they do, and hook up as much as they do? Are your views on abortion and gender and sexual identity just as unbiblical as their views on those topics? When you see what they post on social media, it looks a whole lot, like what you post on social media? When you see their pictures of their scantily clad children, it looks a lot like your pictures of your scantily clad children. When you evaluate their neutral complacency towards God, it strongly resembles your neutral complacency towards God. I'm trying to ask you to evaluate how you spend your hours and what you do outside of what you do here on Sunday. And does your life strongly resemble the life of the world, the life of the culture, the life of a lost person that you work with and go to school with and that you play ball with? I'm asking, does your life look extremely different? If you are saved, you've been saved on purpose and for a purpose. You've been saved to be set apart so you can testify to a lost wife. Watching world of how good God is and who he is and what he's done for you in Jesus Christ and what he expects for you in response to that glorious salvation. Does your life look different than the life of the lostness around you? Now it's at this moment that more than a few of you would think to yourself, I am appalled. I am utterly, utterly offended, pastor, that you would even ask me those types of questions. That is so out of bounds. Well, maybe it is. I don't think it is, but maybe it is. If it is out of bounds, then let me at least ask this. When was the last time that you were stirred in your heart for the Lord? When was the last time that somebody asked you the reason for your joy when was the last time that somebody asked you, and they're not going to use these words, but in so many words, they're asking this question? When was the last time somebody asked you, I can see you're in this world, but you are not like this world? Why? And if you can tell me nobody's asked me those types of questions, then all of my previous questions are on the table and they're in bounds. Because unless The lost watching world is looking at you and looking at me, and they're saying, you know what? There is something different about you. It's the way you live. It's the words you speak. It's the actions that you do. You don't do the same things that we do. You don't speak the same way that we speak. You don't have the same ideas that we have. In the words of Peter the Apostle, we are to be a peculiar people. We are to be different and set apart. What we do, what we post, what we say, what happens on Friday night, it should not look the same as our lost friends and co-workers. If we look like we're lost, act like we're lost, drink like we're lost, cuss like we're lost, hook up like we're lost, then guess what? We just might be lost. Because if God has saved us, he has changed us. He changes us from the inside out, and we are to be remarkably different. This is Zephaniah's problem. When the Lord says, I will sweep away everything from the face of the earth, it's because of this kind of thing. God's people aren't living for the God of the people. And in response, if God's people don't live for the God of the people, then who will? The lost people aren't going to live for the Lord, they don't know the Lord. But we say we know the Lord. We say we love the Lord. We say that we're followers of the Lord. So Zephaniah says, because of all of this, chapter 1, verse 14, the day of the Lord is near. Now, like the prophet Joel, Joel said the day of the Lord is both great and dreadful. It's here that Zephaniah speaks plainly about the day of the Lord. It'll be a day of ruin. It'll be a day of wrath, he says. He also makes the comment, it will be a day of distress and great anguish. For Zephaniah, the day of the Lord was a day of judgment. And this judgment was coming because the covenant people of God failed to remember that covenant privileges carry covenant responsibilities. So in chapter 2, Zephaniah describes the far-reaching effect of the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord apparently will be global in its scope. In chapter 2, it's as if Zephaniah has a compass in his hand. A compass has four points, and Zephaniah points in four different directions, showing us the far-reaching effect of the day of the Lord. In chapter 2, verse 4, he starts with Philistia. That's the Philistines. He's pointing to the west. He says, the leading city of Philistia, that is Gaza. Gaza will be abandoned. God will destroy it. Now, if that city Gaza, if it sounds familiar to you, it should. It's the same ancient city that we find in our news cycle numerous times over the last month or so. It's the same city... Israel and Hamas are warring right now. That's the same city of Gaza. Zephaniah says that the effect of the day of the Lord, it will reach all the way to the west. And in his day, the furthest western point was Philistia in Gaza. Also, it will reach to the furthest point to the east. He speaks of the Moabites and the Ammonites. They'll be treated like Sodom and Gomorrah. They will be utterly destroyed. He goes south to Cush, which is another name for Ethiopia. And he says, Ethiopia will be slain by the hand of the Lord. He goes north to Assyria. You realize that at this time, Assyria is on her last leg, but God promises she will be completely destroyed, for the hand of the Lord will be outstretched against Assyria. What Zephaniah describes is that in all directions, to the west, to the east, to the south, to the north, Every nation will be affected by the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will have a global impact. In chapter three, the prophet circles back to the southern kingdom of Judah. I told you that Zephaniah was a good old southern boy, just like Habakkuk. They lived before the days of the Babylonian captivity, but they saw it coming. And so he started with God's people, and now he ends with God's people. And in chapter 3, he speaks about the city of Zion, Jerusalem, there in the southern kingdom of Judah. And they will experience the day of the Lord. In verse 8, the first verse that I read to you a few moments ago, the Lord says, A day is coming. That's the day of the Lord. A day is coming Well, I will stand and testify. I'll gather the nations. I'll pour out my wrath all the earth will be consumed with my jealous anger. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds a lot more than merely the Babylonian captivity, doesn't it? I mean, that sounds like Zephaniah is seeing something that is greater than the Babylonians coming and overtaking the southern kingdom of Judah. I mean, he's saying in verse 8, after all this uh, global destruction, there'll be global judgment for the Lord will stand up. He will gather the nations. He will assemble them all together. He will defeat his enemies and, and he will pour out his wrath. This is God speaking. He will pour out his wrath upon the nation and the whole world will be consumed by his jealous anger. It seems to me that what Zephaniah is describing are the end events of the day of the Lord. It sounds like revelation, doesn't it? And certainly we know that when the day of the Lord comes in its fullest, the sure sign that it's the day of the Lord is when King Jesus will descend from the heavens. I mean, when we look up and see King Jesus, we, we know the day of the Lord is coming. And he'll come back to that sacred spot, that little slice of land the place that we call Israel. He'll come back there. He'll gather the nations. He'll exert justice. In the words of Jesus, he will separate sheep from the goats, wheat from the weeds, children of light from the children of darkness. And he will establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. Right after verse 8, you get verse 9, right? That's obvious, right? After verse 8 comes verse 9. But when you read verse 9, it would appear that Zephaniah abruptly makes a shift. That he smashes, that he presses, that he bumps. Verse 9, right up against verse 8. Verse 8, this picture of of global judgment. Verse 9, this picture of glorious salvation. He says that lips will be purified. They'll call on the name of the Lord. People will serve him shoulder to shoulder, side by side. I don't know about you, but that sounds like the glorious salvation of God. Because after all, you can't have purified lips without a transformed heart. It's Jesus who said that out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. All you got to do is take an evaluation of your speech to understand what's going on in your heart. Have you ever said something and you thought to yourself, that doesn't sound like me. I can't believe I said that. Where did that come from? I'll tell you where it came from. It came from your clogged heart. Your heart that is full of sin and deception. It's beyond all cure. Who can help it, right? I mean, we need a heart transplant by God Almighty. When God transforms the heart, that transformed heart and life provides purified lips. And it's with purified lips that you and I cry out the name of the Lord. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament say the very same thing. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's the name that's above every name, at the name of Jesus. Every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And when you are saved, you are saved to serve. Here, Zephaniah says, you will serve him. Who's the him? The Messiah, the Lord himself. You will serve him, and we will be shoulder to shoulder. What a beautiful picture of a united church. No divisions. Nothing that separates. We are shoulder to shoulder, arm in arm, side by side. We are serving the Lord both now and forevermore. I don't want to bust your picture of heaven. But if you think to yourself that when you die, you're going to be assigned a cloud. And you're going to sit on it, scantily clad like a baby. And have a harp in hand of which you're going to uh, strum the heart. That is not a picture of biblical heaven. When we are in heaven, we are serving him. The word serve also means the word worship. We are worshiping him. We are working for him in the best sense of the word. And we are so arm in arm. We are so side by side. We are so shoulder to shoulder. Not only are we pressed together uh, out of great number, but we're also pressed together in unity so that nothing will divide us. I can't wait for the day when there's an undivided church. I can't wait for the day when there are no factions in the church. I can't wait for the day when nothing divides, splinters, and separates God's people. And the day is coming, and the end result of the day of the Lord is that the church will be united shoulder to shoulder. What flows from verse 9 are pictures of glorious salvation. Following in verse 10 all the way through the end of the chapter, The Lord promises, I will take away your punishment. I don't know about you, that sounds great, doesn't it? Where God says, I will take away your punishment. I will be with you, declares the Lord. I will delight in you. Verse 17, I will sing over you with rejoicing. Oh, that famous verse of Zephaniah 317, where the Lord is portrayed as singing over us with rejoicing. We oftentimes think about how we sing to the Lord and rightfully so. Oh, but there's coming a day in glorious salvation when God will be the one singing over us. Like a parent sings over a child. What a sweet lullaby, right? Beautiful pictures of God's glorious salvation. When you and I come to Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, I think there's an abrupt shift where in verse 8, uh, Zephaniah is describing the global judgment of the day of the Lord. And then pressed against it is verse nine, the glorious salvation of the day of the Lord. This is Zephaniah's description of what Joel said. Joel the prophet said, the day of the Lord will be great and dreadful. So which one is it? Will the day of the Lord be great or will the day of the Lord be dreadful? Is it something you're supposed to look forward to or is it something you're supposed to dread? And the answer to that all depends on your Position and perspective to the Lord of the day. If you're in Christ, it's a great day. If you're outside of Christ, it's a dreadful day. If you're in Christ, you'll have the glorious salvation of God, where God takes away all of your condemnation and your punishment, and he will delight in you. He will sing over you with rejoicing. If you're in Christ, this is a glorious picture of salvation. If you are outside of Christ, it's a day of global judgment and not just for the nations out there not just for the peoples over there also for the peoples in here that if we don't know Christ it will be judgment it was John Piper who worked his way through this passage and asked a very poignant question what does this passage have to do with us it's a valid question in the strictest sense, this passage is given by a Jewish prophet named Zephaniah to the Jewish people living in Mount Zion, Jerusalem. You could expand it to the southern kingdom of Judah. I think you'd be okay even to expand it to the nation of Israel. But what does this passage have to do with us? I know I'm taking adventure here. But as I look around the crowd, probably the vast majority of us, if not all of us, are Gentiles. We're not Jews. The word Gentile just means non-Jewish. It's everybody else who's not a Jew, they're a Gentile, right? And so when you stop and think about this passage would seem to be applied to the Jewish people of Israel, specifically the Jewish people of Judah, those living in and around Jerusalem, about 500 years before the coming of Christ. When you take a step back, you realize, now wait a minute, that's a Jewish prophet speaking to Jewish people. And this book that I hold in my hand, we call the Bible, it's a Jewish book. It's written by 40 authors. And those 40 human authors have at least one thing in common. All 40 of them are Jewish. This Jewish book written by Jewish authors tells of the coming of the Jewish Messiah. And this book declares that when that Messiah comes, he will not only be the Messiah to the Jewish nation, but also to all the nations. For he will be king of kings and lord of lords. And this book describes this Messiah as coming back in a similar manner. That the first time he came as a mighty Messiah. And the second time he'll come as a righteous ruler and a holy judge. So What does this book have to do with us? We come in here today and we sing, we rejoice, we celebrate. We act as if this book belongs to us. How can that be? How can this be our book? How can this be our Jesus? How can this be our Messiah? How can this be applied to us? This phenomenon did not escape the mind of the Apostle Paul, who, by the way, was a Jewish apostle. In fact, numerous times, the Apostle Paul would would write about this. In Ephesians chapter 3, he speaks about this mystery. He describes the mystery in Ephesians chapter 3 in this way, how through the gospel, Gentiles are heirs together with Israel. Now for him, that blew his mind. How is that possible? How can it be that Gentiles can be co-heirs with Israel? And the answer is through the gospel. That when we believe upon the gospel, that when we believe that Jesus is the God-man who came and died for our sins and that he was buried on the third day, raised from the dead, when we believe upon the gospel, we are united in Jesus Christ and Jesus links us as co-heirs with him and with Israel. Paul says this is a mystery. In other words, I don't know how to explain it. I don't know how else to say it. I mean, this is a profound mystery. In a place like Colossians chapter two, he speaks of this mystery again. And this time he describes the mystery in these words, Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul, how is it possible that Christ can live in us, the dregs of society? How is it possible that Christ can live in us, sinful Gentiles? How is it possible that Christ can live in us, the sedimentary nastiness that settles in the bottom of society? How is it possible that Christ can live in us? And he says, listen, that's a mystery, but the fact that Christ lives in you is the hope of glory. Because God, in His mercy, included you and included me. Not just Jews, but also Gentiles. The more developed picture of this comes in Romans chapter 11. It's there where Paul once again is wrestling with this salvation to Jew and Gentile. And he says that God has grafted the wild shoot into the olive branch. Now, do you want to take a guess on who the uh, who the wild shoot is? That's us. That's me. That's you. That's gentiles. We are the we're the we're the wild shoot and God in his mercy he has grafted us in to the olive branch. And throughout the Old Testament, an olive branch is synonymous with Israel. And so this wild offshoot is now grafted in to the olive branch, and we enjoy the nutrients, and we enjoy the sustenance of the developed root system of the olive tree. That root system that includes uh, the Jewish law, that includes God's word, his Torah, that includes the promises and the prophets, uh, that includes the, uh, the, the, the words of God, that includes the Messiah of God. People have asked the question, hey, do we stand with Israel? You bet your bottom dollar we stand with Israel. Have you read Romans 11? We are grafted in to believing Israel everything we have in faith is grounded and rooted in what God gave to his chosen people Israel chosen because they were to give testimony to who God is and what he expects so God's law God's provision God's promises God's prophets God's Messiah comes through the nation of Israel and if we link up with them God has grafted us by faith into believing Israel Woo! Praise the Lord. Right? So this is a mystery. It's it's, it's, It's amazing, actually, that God would choose to save not only Jew, but also Gentile. God's plan of salvation for any believer, Jew or Gentile, is something that in the mind of God predates Genesis one one, and you know what predates Genesis one one because of what God says in Revelation chapter thirteen verse eight. That if you go to the last book of the Bible, you'll see what God was thinking about before the first book of the Bible was ever written. Now that should blow your mind. Okay, so before Genesis one one, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Before all that happened, Revelation thirteen eight was taking place in the heart and mind of God. Where John says, behold the Lamb of God who was slain before the very foundation of the earth. That God knew that the only way for lost scum of society to be saved was for the God-man to come. And in the mind of God, before Genesis 1-1, he knew that Jesus would be the Lamb who was slain before the very foundation of the earth. So God never had a plan B of salvation because he never needed a plan B of salvation. All he needs is plan A. Plan A is sufficient to save both Jew and Gentile. So it's in Jesus that we find the fulfillment of every covenant God ever made with his people. Have you ever heard of the word covenant? It is a unilateral promise where God makes a promise that cannot be broken. In the Old Testament, there are five covenants. In Genesis chapter nine, God made a covenant with Noah. He said, I will never flood the earth again. And I make a promise with this righteous man, Noah. God set the sign and symbol of that covenant in the sky. It's a rainbow. Every time you see the rainbow, It should remind you not of the LGBTQ community, but it should remind you of the covenant promise of God that he made with Noah. Now, Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenant. Jesus is the fulfillment of the covenant made with Noah. This covenant of life that God gives to Noah is fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus said on the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. The second covenant is given to us in Genesis chapter 12. It's the covenant given to Abraham. The Lord said to Abraham, "I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. The whole world, all the nations will be blessed through you." In the book of Galatians in the New Testament, it's the apostle Paul that accurately identifies that when God made the promise, the covenant to Abraham, that he would bless the world through you that's a singular word that god was thinking of a singular seed not 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 many seeds plural even though abraham is a father of many nations and he had many descendants When God says, I will bless the world through you, he was thinking through one singular seed. And Paul says in Galatians, that singular seed is none other than Jesus Christ. Jesus is not only King of the Jews, he's King of the nations, he's King of the cosmos, he's King of the universe, he's King of all kings, and he's Lord of all lords. This Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise, his covenant to Abraham, where the Lord said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, I will curse those. Who curse you? The whole world will be blessed through you and your singular seed. That seed, that offspring, is Jesus Christ. The third covenant is given to Moses. Moses is the lawgiver. He's the mediator. He's the one who hears the word of God. He sees it etched on tablets of stone. He gives the Torah to the people. He gives. Uh, he's the author of the Pentateuch. He he says that life is given. So if you Obey, you'll be blessed. If you disobey, you'll be cursed. And Jesus comes as one greater than Moses. For Jesus said, I did not come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it in every way. It's not only that Jesus knows the law, but Jesus fulfills the law. You may know the law. And you realize that in the knowing of the law, you're disobedient. The fact the law was given was never as a means for salvation, but as a mirror to show you just how sinful you are. But Jesus not only knows the law, but he fulfills the law in every way. The fourth covenant is a promise given to David, 2 Samuel chapter 7, where the Lord says to King David, there will always be on the throne one of your offspring. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. Jesus is described as the son of David, is he not? Jesus is described as coming from the line and lineage of David. And Jesus establishes his kingdom and his throne forever and ever and ever. Jesus has never abdicated the throne, and Jesus has never been thrown from the royal throne. Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the fulfillment of the covenant that was given to David. The fifth and final covenant is given from the prophet Jeremiah chapter 31 where the Lord declares, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and a new covenant with the house of Judah. I will write the law on their minds. I will impress it upon their hearts. Ezekiel says of this new covenant that God will do something in a miraculous way where he takes out a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he had the Passover meal with his disciples. And during that Passover meal, That remembrance of God's promises and his provisions all throughout the generations. Jesus comes to the cup of redemption. He pours the wine into the cup. He gives it to his disciples. And he says, this is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. At least from the perspective of Jesus, he understood he's the fulfillment of that covenant. It is his blood that seals that new covenant. And in fact, by sealing that new covenant, it also seals every other covenant that precedes it. So Jesus is the fulfillment of every covenant that God ever gave to the Jewish people. So that Jesus is the king of the Jews and he's king of Gentiles. He's the king of kings and he's the king uh, and Lord of lords. Following the Passover meal, it is Jesus who goes outside. He's handed over to the religious rulers. Uh, They beat him. They strip him. They uh, place a crossbeam upon him. He stumbles and staggers through the streets of Jerusalem on that Friday. And on that Friday, Jesus went up Calvary's hill and he died. In the death of Jesus, he drank every last drop of God's righteous wrath and holy hostility towards your sin and mine somebody's going to pay for your sin. It's either going to be you for all of eternity in a place called hell, or by faith you're going to believe that Jesus paid it all for you and that your sin is transferred to him and his righteous innocence is then imputed and transferred unto you. So either you're going to pay for it or Jesus is going to pay for it. And Jesus died for a world of lost sinners on that Friday in the third decade of the first century. He took every last drop of God's holy hostility and the righteous, uh, uh, righteous um, uh, requirements of condemnation. And Jesus died on Friday. But we know it didn't stop there because this book tells us that on the third day On the first day of the week, on Resurrection Sunday, Jesus got up the dead man began to breathe again. And Jesus burst forth from the tomb. And by that action, by God the Father, through the power of God the Spirit, raising God the Son, when that happened, it validated everything that had happened on Friday. And Jesus proved himself victorious over sin, death, hell, and the grave. Whose sin? Your sin. Whose hell? Your hell. Whose death? Your death. Whose grave? Your grave. He proved himself victorious over everything that confines you and defines you in this world. And Jesus proved himself victorious. He ascended to the heavens. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Do you know what Jesus is doing right now as he's seated at the right hand of the Father? He's making intercession for you. He is praying for you right now. Isn't that awesome? He is praying for you in this very moment. He'll keep on doing that until God the Father, by the power of God the Spirit, looks at God the Son And says, go get your bride. And Jesus will stand up. He'll peel back the clouds. He will descend. He will do what Zephaniah describes. He will return to that sacred spot. We keep our eye on Israel because we know that one day Jesus is coming back. He'll come right there. He will gather the nations. He will defeat the enemies. He will exert his justice. He will separate sheep from goats. He will establish his kingdom forever and ever and ever. And you and I, Jew and Gentile, those who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be with our Messiah forever and ever and ever and ever. Because of Jesus, this is our book. Because of Jesus, these are our promises. Because of Jesus... The glorious salvation that Zephaniah talks about belongs to us. Because of our Jesus, he transforms our hearts. Because of Jesus, he purifies our lips. Because of Jesus, we declare he is King of kings and Lord of lords. Because of Jesus, we've been saved to serve. And because of Jesus, we will lock arm in arm, shoulder to shoulder, and we'll serve the Lord both now and forevermore. Because of Jesus, we look like the Lord. Because of Jesus, we act like the Lord. Because of Jesus, we talk like the Lord. Because of Jesus, we value the Lord. Because of Jesus, we even dress like the Lord. Because of Jesus, we want to live our life to glorify the Lord. It's all because of Jesus. Because of Jesus, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. And I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but I wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand sand. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, as to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock we stand, all of the ground is sinking sand. So this morning I ask you, is this your passage? Does Zephaniah belong to you? Is this your passage? Is he describing your salvation? Verses 9 and following in chapter 3. Is this your passage? Is this a description of your God who removed all your punishment? Is this a portrait of your salvation by your God who delights in you and rejoices over you with singing? If it's not, it can be. This can be your passage today. All you have to do is be grafted in, linked in to the gospel. And how do you do that? By faith in the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. Paul says the mystery is that because of the gospel, Gentiles are now co heirs with Israel through Jesus Christ. So if this is not your passage, it can be. We're going to sing. We're going to invite you to come. If you've never trusted Jesus as Savior, today is a day of your salvation. This can be your passage. See, friend, um, I think this is my passage. I think, I think this book does belong to us. I think this book does describe our Messiah. I, 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 know, I know that it's a Jewish book written by Jewish people, but, but God chose them, why? To testify to his goodness, to testify to his grace for the scum of society like you and like me. So this is my book. He is my Savior. This passage of glorious salvation, it belongs to me. And if you're like me and this belongs to you, live like it. Live like it. If you think to yourself, you know what, Pastor, you were really kind of getting on my nerves. You were stepping on my toes when you're talking about the pictures I post of my kids and, and what I say on Instagram and uh, how greedy I am and self-absorbed and how much I drink and cuss and hook up. I mean, you were kind of getting all up in my face, and I was kind of getting angry at you. Friend, that wasn't me. That was the Spirit of God that was getting up in your grill. And he's telling you, look, if you're saved, you need to live like it. If you're saved, you need to act like it. And the reason you live a certain way and you act a certain way is because God has set you apart to give testimony to a lost world of who God is and what he expects from you. Look, if you don't live for the Lord, who will? Lost people won't. Lost people live like lost people. But the saved ought to look like the saved. If this is your passage, live like it. If you're sitting there thinking to yourself, you know what? It's been a a while since I was stirred wine. It's been a while since I was uh, fragrant wine. It's been a while. I I need to be stirred. Um, Whenever God's people ask to be stirred, you know what the God of the people will do? He'll stir us. If you wanna be stirred, you can. In fact, you can be as stirred up as you wanna be. You can be as fragrant wine as you want to be. Because God wants to stir you for his glory. And if you haven't been stirred in a while, then maybe you just need to come and say, God, please forgive me, please stir me again. If this is not your passage, it can be. If it is your passage, live like it. Not for salvation, but from salvation. And maybe, just maybe, there's some of us who have become the sedimentary scum that settles in the bottom of the barrel. And God says to you, I didn't make you to stay there. I made you to be stirred up. May God, by His Spirit, stir His people again. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We give this moment of invitation. We pray that you'll be honored and glorified. Let this passage be our passage. Let this book be our book. Let this Messiah be our Messiah. Let this description of salvation be the salvation that we have because of the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Lord, draw people to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.